to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John uh, chapter 2 as we get into God's Word together. We've been working our way through this letter. Uh, all the letters in the New Testament are important, and this one is no different. We've called this uh, series in 1 John that you may know, and there have been and are teachers in the church today who resist the truth that the power to know and love comes only through Jesus. Uh, It's no different in the tribe. Even Brad mentioned a bit ago that they have cults showing up in a teddy to try to lead the people astray. So it happens everywhere. No place is exempt. Even in the first century, uh, in John's day, a teacher named Serinthus that John would have nothing to do with taught the wicked nonsense that the divine Christ came on the human Jesus at his baptism, but left him when he went to the cross. The effect of of such teaching was to deny that God's divine life is now in us through the Holy Spirit and that we are forgiven and that we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to love well. Uh, Paul wrote in Romans that the, the spirit of the love of God is shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to you. And so um, the death of of Jesus, if he was just a man and not God, could never accomplish what God did accomplish through the death of a fully divine and fully human son. Uh, Billy Graham, the evangelist, writes, and you've got this on your outline, thousands of uninstructed Christians are being deceived today. False teachers use high-sounding words that seem like the height of logic and scholarship and culture. They are intellectually clever in their dishonesty and adept at appealing to thoughtless, untaught men and women. And of course, we don't want that to describe us here at Claremont Emanuel. Uh, Some of you might remember the name Jim Jones. He was the founder of the People's Temple, and he led 900 of his followers to commit mass suicide in Jonestown, Guyana, and that included 300 children. I remember when this happened because I I had just started seminary at Gordon-Conwell. Kathy, uh, my wife, we were engaged at that time, was going to Bible school at Cape and Ray Bible School in England. And that was the greatest loss of American civilian life in a deliberate act until 9-11. People who listened to a, a live audio recording of what happened as it was taking place said that it was very disturbing, even demonic, as Jim Jones calmly urged his followers to drink this cyanide-laced Kool-Aid after having given it to their children. It's heartbreaking. Jim Jones is just one of the most extreme examples of spiritual deception uh, in making something seem like Christianity when it is not. But he's certainly not alone. History is marked by those who, in thousands of different ways, have influenced people away from God and damaged them and even destroyed their lives. Uh, In the Bible, there are repeated warnings 
against those who will seek to deceive us spiritually. Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns about false prophets who are deceptive, genuinely deceptive and dangerous. Jesus said in Matthew 7, they will come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Wolves are the natural enemies of sheep. They're dressed as sheep, but they come as wolves. And these false teachers uh, were out to destroy. Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 writes about false teachers masquerading, he says in 2 Corinthians 11, as servants of righteousness. And more often than not, they're just, they're dangerous. Uh, They may seem sincere, but they are not neutral. uh, And they want to bring harm to the faith. Um, We ended last week with verse 17. You can look at verse 17. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So it's a logical step from verse 17, where John moves from the world that is passing away to the last hour in these verses we're looking at this morning. So John, he's not primarily thinking about the last hour, but that's the transition. And he's thinking mainly about the false teachers. And he calls them antichrists and contrasts them with God's true children that he's writing to. So let's read our passage, 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going, their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. This is God's word for us this morning. So since the beginning of the church, wherever you find the gospel, you can be sure that close by are false teachers trying to lead astray those who want to follow God. So the first thing this passage teaches us is, number one on your outline, that false teachers' departure confirms they were not believers. John says in verse 18 that the presence of these false teachers is actually a a sign of the end times. And the fact that they leave the church proves that they're false teachers. So something we also understand from verse 18 is how important it is that we believe the right things so that we can identify what's false. And and how do we know the right things to believe? From Scripture, from the Word of God. The Word of God is the basis of truth. And that's what we base our truth on, the truth of of what we know. The Antichrist uh, is coming is one of the things that John says. 
the Antichrist literally means that this is on your outline against Christ. They're the antithesis. The Antichrist is the antithesis of Christ. Satan is completely committed to deception. Uh, Jesus described this in John chapter 8, where he wrote this, that describing Satan as a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There will be an Antichrist, and we don't know when he'll come, but we do know that in the end, Jesus wins. There's a lot we don't know about the future, but that is one thing we know. I like what one commentator said. He said, we are not on the planning committee for the return of Christ, but we are on the reception committee. John says in verse 18, the Antichrist, singular, is coming, but even now many Antichrists, plural, have come. And so it's the Antichrists that are the false prophets who, pe- who pretend to be Christians, but aren't. Uh, Their presence leads John to conclude, still in verse 18, that this is how we know it is the last hour. Uh, We're in the last hour because the doctrine of the person and work of Christ is God's final word to us. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But Notice this, listen to this closely. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. What this means is that another authoritative word from God is not coming. We have it in the word of God. So if someone's bringing another authoritative word of God, they are false teachers. They're like the final antichrist in that they will come talking about Jesus but are ultimately against Jesus. So how do you think Satan would go about trying to destroy the church? Well, you might think he would bring about persecution, but in the history of the church, every time there's been a great persecution, the church has grown. Uh, It's just not worked. But here's what he does. He sends false teachers into the church that are, as the Apostle Paul described them, angels of light. They seem like that, who would lead people astray little by little through false teaching. It's a counterfeit. And it's close enough to almost pass as the real thing. There's enough truth in it to try to draw you in and to suck you in. But but it's a counterfeit to the real thing. People don't counterfeit $3 bills because a $3 bill doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a $3 bill. People don't counterfeit what's not real. Dr. Haddon Robinson said it like this. It's on your outline. When Satan approaches us, he never comes dragging the chains that will enslave us. He comes offering us pleasure, expansiveness, money, popularity, freedom, and joy. In fact, he never hints about the consequences. He only promises that he will fill all the desires of our hearts. That's how we are destroyed. So over the years, there have been so much wrong teaching, for example, about the second coming of Christ. We don't know when he's going to come, but we know he will come. 
The founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, Charles Russell, taught that the world would end in 1874. When that didn't happen, he revised it to 1914. Uh, his successor, J.F. Rutherford, claimed that Christ did in fact come in 1914, but he was invisible and nobody saw him. John doesn't tell us why these false teachers left the church. But in the context of the letter, it seems clear that it had to do with doctrinal issues concerning the person and work of Christ, as well as some ethical issues. There have been always been those who left the church because they think the church got it wrong. And suddenly, they got it right because God spoke to them personally. Jim Jones, I mentioned earlier, uh, who was a false prophet, for a while he was a part of a church. But he departed from the faith. And as John says, he went out of the church. And his, his exit and the subsequent teaching that he had, which was false teaching, made it clear that he was genuinely never a part of the body of Christ, never a part of the church in the first place. One of the founders of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, said he was visited by an angel from heaven named Moroni who dropped down golden tablets of new scripture called the Book of Mormon. And Joseph Smith had been a member of a local church but decided the church was, was corrupt. And he thought God wanted uh, to begin a new church and had, of, of course, chosen him to begin it. And so Joseph Smith went out and founded Mormonism. Mormonism teaches a lot of false doctrines, as you may know. Primarily that Jesus is not God. <clears throat> you know, what, when, what, what we believe is that Jesus is God. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Um, but Mormons, they're morally responsible people. They are good people, but that's not the issue. Right living is one thing. Right doctrine is altogether something else. You cannot combine right living with false doctrine and call yourself an Orthodox Christian or part of a Bible-believing church. These examples of Jim Jones and Joseph Smith and Russell and Rutherford are exactly what John is talking about in verse 19 when he says, they went out from us. The word us refers to the fellowship of believers, to the church. When we come to faith, we are immediately a part of God's universal family, but then we, we must identify with a local group of Christians. That's why we believe in membership of the church. Uh, the point here is that someone can belong to a local church and not be a part of the true spiritual body of Christ. And one of the evidences, and this is on your outline of true Christian life, is a desire to be with God's people. It says in 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Remember the word love, like the word know, is mentioned 30 plus times in, in, this, in this letter. Um, verse 19 continues. They went out from us. They broke, they broke fellowship with us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, still verse 19, they would have remained with us but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So a cult is a deviation from orthodoxy, from the orthodox biblical faith. Um, when you talk to someone who's a part of a cult, like Mormons, 
you need to keep in mind that they use a lot of the same words we use, but they give them different definitions. For example, if you were to ask somebody in any of these cults, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? They would say, oh yeah, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. But they define that way differently. However, if you ask the question like this, do you believe that Jesus is God the Son? Then all those cults have to say no because they don't believe that Jesus is God. So that's what we need to do. Another example is Christian science, which I think is always funny because it's not Christian and it's not science. Uh, it's a little bit like grape nuts. They aren't grapes and they're not nuts. I don't know what grape nuts are. And I don't know what Christian science is. I just know that they don't, that they're a cult. They do not believe that Jesus Christ is God. It was founded by Mary Baker Eddy. And words that mean one thing to us mean something else to them. For example, you can talk about the resurrection of Jesus. They say, yeah, we believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. That's foundational to believe that Jesus is God. But when you dig a little deeper, you know that by resurrection, they'll say Jesus was not raised from the dead. Physically, it was his spirit that was revived. We believe that the resurrection, we as Christians, believe that the resurrection was the raising of the body of Jesus from the grave. Paul said if that didn't happen in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, then we are still in our sins. And, and, uh, and this is a common practice for every cult to change the definitions of the words that are used. Um, when you see someone who's a member of the church and who turns their back on Jesus and turns their back on biblical beliefs, it's basically a guarantee that that person was never a genuine Christian to begin with. That's one of the ways John says in his letter that we can tell if someone is a Christian. So just because someone professes Christianity doesn't mean they're truly a Christian. God knows it's, it, it, what's, what's going on in their hearts. And there are some things that we can see on the outside. And so you have this on your outline, profession does not necessarily mean possession. And speaking of 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, James Boyce, uh, pastor and theologian, is right on target when he says this. The implication of John's statement is that some Christians are so much like non-Christians and some non-Christians are so much like Christians that it is impossible to tell the difference between them in this life. The first mark of false teachers is they depart from the fellowship of the church. The old saying is still true, faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. That may be an old saying, but I'd never heard of it. So anyway, <clears throat> the second thing we see in this passage is that the Holy Spirit confirms the truth. Uh, verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. So the pronoun you at the beginning of verse 20 is in a place of emphasis. And so it's saying that it's to create this strong contrast between false teachers and John's readers who are true believers. Um, false teachers deny the basics, basic truths of Christianity from the Bible. But verse 20 says, you have an anointing from the Holy One. And that seems to be an indirect reference to the Holy Spirit. The word anointing comes from the Old Testament that where John gets that from the Old Testament where kings and priests and prophets were anointed for their ministries by the pouring on of olive oil and then setting, being set aside for special service. 
and the Holy Spirit comes on those people for the particular times of service that they have. Unlike today when the Holy Spirit is poured out, when a new covenant is among us and, and that is talked about in Jeremiah 31. Um, but John went to the cross, when, when Jesus went to the cross, and John was with him, John was with, Jesus was with all of the disciples in the upper room. <clears throat> he talked to them and told them that a comforter was coming. And he says in John 14, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. Notice what he says. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit that indwells all believers. We don't have to ask for a special anointing because we have the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So this is on your, on your outline. The result of, of this anointing of the Holy Spirit is that all Christians have the truth. We have the word of God that is affirmed to us by the Holy Spirit who bears witness to our spirits, Paul writes in Romans 8.16, that we are the children of God. And so, so John says in verse 20, you all know the truth. Uh, but you have an, the, an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. What John is saying is that what we know because of the Holy Spirit is we know God, we know Jesus, we know the word of God, and we know the truth. You know, it's interesting that in 1 John, John says to know seven things. We're not going to go into these, but I put these on your outline <clears throat> as kind of one of them we've looked at, but we've got six more in front of us in 1 John that we're going to be looking at. But I hope you can go through these, underline them in your Bible, read those, on, study them on your own. But we know based on God revealing himself by coming into history, that what he tells us is true. Jesus rose from the dead physically to prove that he was God. Uh, God revealed himself then through Jesus, and this is on your outline, and through his word. That's how we know. And that's why a good part of our worship service is taken up with the word. It's central to who we are as believers and to what we believe and our worship of God. And then John continues in verse 21 to remind us that he's writing because we do know the truth. Verse 21, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Jesus says in John 17, 17, the high priestly prayer, when Jesus prays for us as believers, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We are justified by God. That is one moment in time. And then we are sanctified for the rest of our lives. Sanctification is a lifelong process of becoming like Jesus. Um, I was trying to describe, or I wanted to describe how sanctification was and ran across a letter that was written by Phillips Brooks. You may not know that name, but he was he's famous because he wrote... Uh, hymn, uh, a Christmas carol that we sing, 
O little town of Bethlehem. He was a pastor in Boston. And he was a godly pastor and a caring pastor. And a young man came in to, uh, to talk with him and, and, and asked him, actually wrote a letter to him, and said, how is it that you have the strength and the courage to keep on going as a pastor? And I, I think that the, the response that Phillips Brooks wrote to this young man is a perfect example of what sanctification really is. He said this, in my last years, it is a deeper knowledge and truer love of Christ that keeps me going every day. Jesus knows me, and I love him. And he is the most real thing, the most real person in the world. And every day makes it more real. And it gives me joy to think of what this love will grow to as the years go by. To me, that's sanctification learning to love Jesus more every day, learning to be like him more every day. That's God's goal for us. That's why it says in John chapter, in Romans chapter 8, at the end of the, of the Romans chapter 8, 29, that we are predestined to become like Jesus, conformed to him. And the thing we learned, the third thing we learned from these verses, number three on your outline, is that to deny the Son is also to deny the Father. Verse 22, who is the liar? It is, the, it is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying Father and Son. So in verse 22, the lie of the, the false teachers hits right at the heart of the gospel. And that is to deny that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God. That's what Messiah means, the anointed one who provides salvation through his death on the cross and proved it through his resurrection physically, bodily, three days after his death. So John is saying that any person, any movement, any religion that denies this truth, that person is a liar. You know, one of the things, one of the courses that I took uh, in, in grad school and seminary was a course on Islam. I've read and studied the Quran. Uh, let me assure you, uh, and I've had Muslims come to me and say, well, at least we serve the same God. And my response is, boy, the God of the Quran is way different from the God of the Bible. The God of the Quran is not the God of the Bible. We do not serve the same God. The God of the Quran is full of anger and vengeance. The God of the Bible, and we, in, in, in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. You don't read that anywhere in the Quran. Um, <clears throat> no matter what your religion, if you deny that Jesus is God and you choose to reject Jesus, John says you're rejecting God. You can't choose God and reject Jesus. John says that if you deny that Jesus is the Messiah, you're denying the Father as well. Jesus made it clear that there is only one way to know him. It's not like a mountain with all these different ways to get to God who's at the top. Jesus said so clear, clearly that in, in, in John chapter 14, verse 6, uh, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You know, the nature of truth is that truth is very narrow. Having studied philosophy, I can tell you that, that truth is narrow. 
You, you say one thing, you don't mean something else. If I say, this is a bottle of, of water, I, it's a bottle of water. If I say, this is a can of Pepsi, you go, no, it's not, it's a bottle of water. It's very narrow how you define things. And so Jesus is very narrow about this. Someone wrote this, and I, I love this. It says, Jesus is truth. One characteristic of truth is consistency. If this is a bottle of water a little bit ago, it's still a bottle of water. It must fit, truth must fit every fact, every known and unknown situation. If you have something you think is the truth, but you must force things to fit or squeeze pieces in because they do not quite fit, then you do not have the truth. The glorious thing about knowing Christ is that the longer you live and the more you observe life with him at the center, you find that everything fits. Without struggle, without pressure, without twisting or turning, all life fits. For he is the truth. You know the truth, John says, and that is why I write you. And then finally, number four, to abide in the Father and the Son is eternal life. In these last two verses that we're looking at uh, today, John brings what he said together with a challenge and a promise. And here's the challenge, really a command. Verse 24, as for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. Like in verse 23, there's a contrast between true believers and false teachers. And we're challenged, we're commanded to let the truth of the gospel that you have heard from the beginning remain in you. And the phrase from the beginning refers to John's readers when they first heard the gospel. So letting the truth of the gospel remain in you means two things. Number one, we accept the truth. But number two, we interact with the truth in such a way that it changes our lives. It changes our thinking. So verse 25 then ends with a promise, and this is what he promised, eternal life. Those who know Jesus, and so they are those who know the Father, who are obedient to the gospel, have a promise of eternal life. And eternal life doesn't start when you die. Eternal life starts the moment you believe. So, after all this, how are we to not be led astray by false teachers? How do we deal with them? How do we overcome the, 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 the false teachers? There are three things. Number one, you've got these on your outline, spend time in God's word. When people are in a crisis, <clears throat> when they're in a hospital bed, when they're in jail, when they're going through the roughest time of their lives, what do they do? They open the Bible and read the Bible. It has such great promises. Like Isaiah said, fear not, for I am with you. God, speaking for God, be not afraid, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous, my victorious right hand. That's his promise to us. And the Bible, God's word, brings us hope and despair. It brings us power in times of weakness. It gives us guidance in dark times in our lives. The Bible is the account, the, the story, if you will, that gives meaning to the story of your life. And so I encourage you to listen to it in your, in your car. Uh, uh, memorize it. 
whisper those verses to yourself that you've memorized as you go to sleep at night and when you wake up in the morning. Get into a daily Bible reading program. Get a Bible app for your smartphone and, and spend time in your Bible when you, you've got your phone with you and you've got spare time. Do whatever it takes to become a student of the Word of God. And most of all, do what it tells you to do. Jesus said, don't call me Lord and then not do the things that I say in Luke 6. It's easy to be driven by our goals and what's the latest trend is, but we need to let our lives be driven by the word of God. Second, be bold for the truth. Be bold for the truth. Uh, I heard an amazing testimony from a, a man named Dennis Jackson who was a Jehovah's Witness in New York City. He said he had knocked on 10,000 doors for the Jehovah's Witnesses. And he said he knew that he encountered many Christians, but when he did find out they were Christians, they either wanted to argue or didn't want to take the time to talk to him until he knocked on one woman's door. It was an elderly woman. And, and she said, oh, I've been praying that you would come to my door. He was blown away. He was like, what's this about? And he goes in, sits down, and she says, how long will it take you to give your presentation? And he said, 20 minutes. And she said, okay, I'll make you a deal. I'll listen and I won't interrupt you for 20 minutes. If you'll do the same for me, give me 20 minutes and you won't interrupt me. She listened politely to his presentation. As soon as she started, he interrupted. And she was firm but loving and said, you told me you'd give me 20 minutes. And so she just shared the simple gospel. She didn't argue with him. She was kind and she was respectful. And uh, after a few trips back to see her, he trusted Christ. It was a really fun testimony to hear how God had worked. I love the way Peter says it in 1 Peter 3. It's in the Amplified Bible, says this, but in your hearts set Christ apart as holy acknowledging him, giving him first place in your lives as Lord. Always be ready to give a logical defense to anyone who asks you to account for the hope and confident assurance elicited by faith that is within you. It, do it with gentleness and respect. That's what she did. Just share the truth of God in the power of the Holy Spirit and watch God work. And then finally, keep your eyes on Jesus. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion of Christ. That's what we're guarding against. We want to keep our sincere and pure devotion to Christ. A lot to think about there. Let's pray.